Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Constructed Christian. This is episode 437. I'm your host, Easy. I'm joined by my co-hosts, a man who is celebrating the second day of Hanukkah, Abe Stein. That's me. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. And a man who has never lit a candle in his life, Mason Clark. That's true. I love scented candles. They're oh, great. They that's bring fair. They bring a lot of uh, the room. That's fair. So. You know... And I've done, I've lit candles before with my Jewish friends. <gasps> so I've done it all. Dude, that's so dope. Yeah, That's so dope. dope. You know what else is dope is our main topic today. Today we're going to be talking about things that you can pre-plan for. And I'm, I'm really excited to do that. Abe, you look like you wanted to say something there, though. Um, I just want to give big props to Mason for being a well-rounded candle lover. That's all. Dude, that's so Damn. dope. Funnily enough, like I actually think the magic community has done this to me too, where like I have way more like I don't know. Maybe we should just give a shout out to like the magic community for like introducing people to I don't know, dis- different aspects and areas of life because like I also have way more Jewish friends, way more uh, Muslim friends, like just the overall culture that I get to. Um, digest is way bigger because because of Magic the Gathering. Yeah, it's huge. Really awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that being said, uh, before we get into the things that you can pre-plan for, um, which, you know, I'm sure, Abe, you, you pre-planned all the, the gifts for Hanukkah this year, um, let's talk about always improving. The, it is the point of the show. Abe, we want you to go first. What did you do to improve at Magic or Life this week? Yeah, so my always improving moment actually came from a coaching session that I did with um, just pay from the show, Evan Appleton. He's great. We started doing uh, regular coaching, really building around um, his fundamentals and how he was thinking about the game. And in one of the conversations we were having about uh, setting goals for him improving his play was going back and covering um, the four dimensions of thought as like I kind of learned them from reading Next Level Magic when I was in high school, which is like thinking about games from front to back, from back to front, from top to bottom and bottom to top. And something I never really appreciated about thinking about things from like a bird's eye view or from a ground level view in uh, bottom to top and top to bottom um, is really how much more now I think about games uh, from the bottom top level. And what I mean by that is... um, really realizing how much more I'm starting to focus on the impact that an individual card is shaping the game with, like what what a red and six in play means for the game compared to a draw where it doesn't have it is something that is really a part of that bottom top distinction. I really appreciate what that meant in that context before and how to use those uh, those like directions of thinking about about problems to how they apply to games. And then um, you know, I've really just been thinking about how I'm going to use that new appreciation of that concept to really um, push forward the way that I'm thinking about the games I'm playing because it's something I've been doing, but by putting in context of that in the same way I put in context, like think about games back to front of like, what's my end game? How am I playing towards that? You know, what is it I need to do from to get to that end game from where I am? Um, the same way of like, okay, this is what the game looks like right now. From the small point of view, what are the plays I can make that leverage that uh, is really somewhere I'm, I'm focusing my attention this week. Did you find when you were thinking about this, uh, as you were talking about it, I thought this, so that's why I'm asking this question. 
that the overall power level of cards uh, and their increase over the last few years changed the way that you should and could and would think about this? So I think that it's definitely true that the reason that I've started to think about it more is that, especially with Modern Horizons 2 and then the modern format as a whole, so many more of the games come down to single really powerful cards or sets of powerful cards interacting with the game. So like you have games that are decided for Hammer because you have a Sigardizade or an Urza Saga or, you know, like the amount of game plans that are enabled or the implications on a game that are created by single cards is just much more now than it used to be, you know, like it would be, and it's much earlier in the game too. Like, you know, many years ago, it'd be like, the game didn't really, it was about like getting this Jace into play. And then it's really about the turns where Jace is in play and brainstorming versus the turns where the player's trying to keep it off the table. And things like that mattered a lot more. And it was a lot less about the individual cards impacting the game. But that definitely feels like more the case now than it was maybe even, you know, three to five years ago where uh, in, in standard, you know, it'd be like, oh, well, they cast an Oko on turn three and that changed the entire game. And that was like really broken, but even when it was less broken than that, it could be like, well, they cast Nissing and shakes the world. And now they're in the really, really advanced position because a card like this changes so much about the game. Um, whereas before it was, it was a lot less like that. The Ragtuck didn't really change the shape of the game to that degree for so many turns. It's interesting hearing you talk about that because when you were describing it, I was thinking about how standard is sort of analogous to that where often a singular card will change everything and kind of the whole game revolves around it. And the first memory I have it, I believe this card came out first, was Scarab God and Teferi 5. Those are like the two that stick out to me. I can't remember which one came first. I think it's Scarab God. But regardless, that's the first thing that I can remember. My lineage in the game is much shorter than y'all's. But yeah, that's a card where it's like it sticks and everything sort of warps around. Can you like answer this? What happens if this hits the board in a way that is different than something like the right test like no i i, I think yeah. that the the earliest that I, my memory of this is, is actually the one that ape said which is like jace the mind sculptor um mm-hmm. like where the whole game became about like i mean the whole format became about jace and i think that scarab god is actually a really good another one that like the the game changes once you untap with a scarab god so you either have to make that not happen or you have to plan accordingly and i think that the same true like the same thing is true of like run in six like if they're untapping with running six they're getting a second activation what does the game look like now and like that is the that's i think that that's the thing right like once you untap with those type of cards the game becomes about those cards yeah and i think especially planeswalkers play into this because there's kind of like a a real modal nature to what makes a card really impactful in a game. Like for me, I think about a lot about like in the same way, Esper Sentinel or Urza Saga where it presents a real set of decisions and um, and pinches on the opponent to like deal with what is going to be presented by this, which can be a range of problems um, in the short period of time and what that means about the game. Um, and it can even be as simple as like, you know, in a game of limited, your opponent having a 2-2 flyer can mean everything about a game because it means that they're going to attack you for two, like, ten times, and that's a real threat to you, you know? And so it doesn't have to be some insanely powerful, you know, mythic rare for it to be a card that when it's in play is shaping the game or the threat of it is shaping the game. Um, but it definitely feels like these days it's more and more common, or at least, and maybe it's just that I'm noticing it more since I'm thinking about the games in this way more. It's just, uh, 
just more of something that I notice. Yeah, I uh, I hate to pile onto this one, but I actually think that um, what's the name of the I'm losing track of things because I'm playing too many formats. The green, green, green four four in old growth troll. Yeah, old growth troll actually does this a lot, where like the game revolves around it. Like if you untap with it and you have a nykthos or you don't have a nykthos or they kill it and then you get the mana. Like the game becomes about how early did you play that and what did the game look like for that? So I actually think that your point there, Abe is, I don't know. I, I think it's really astute. Yeah. And in the same way, I think it's like nykthos is a big part of that too, right? When they have a nykthos showing, like it almost doesn't really matter to you if you're killing that, but most time it doesn't matter if you're killing that old growth troll to try to like get in damage or if you have the opportunity to spend your entire like hand trying to exile it, like getting one good exchange there can mean a huge difference because of the presence of Nykthos rather than, you know, maybe just trying to avoid that that exchange. But Mason, what about you? What's your always improving moment this week? Yeah, it's kind of I, I guess I'll ask this to the listeners, I'll ask this to y'all too, and you don't have to answer. You can just think about the answer to yourself and we can talk about it if you want it later. But uh it's something that I got from kind of talking to someone and coaching and sort of thinking about magic in general. It's do you have something to prove? And, you know, if you're listening to podcasts, you're you two guys think about it. Is there something you're trying to prove and you're trying to get done? And I think there are a lot of different things. And this statement is kind of broad and there are a lot of different ways you can interpret it. Um, personally, the the kind of thing that I think about this is like, do you have something to prove to others specifically, not just to yourself, but like, are you trying to prove something to people um, and sort of like get something across like I'm this good or I should be respected or I should be listened to or I should be heard. Uh, and I think that it's something that if it is taken and handled the wrong way and sort of looked at in the wrong light can be really detrimental to a lot of people and creates sort of a vicious cycle. And it was really helpful to sort of just sit down and talk to this person and sort of just talk to them about like, hey, Yes, it is good to like push yourself and have goals and stuff like that. But if your goals are contingent on other people validating you or making you feel this sort of way, it's like potentially really dangerous because there's no guarantee they'll do that or they ever even maybe they would. But they just don't even know, you You know, like to give an absurd example, maybe the goal is like, yeah, I just really want Reed Duke to think I'm like an amazing magic player. And it's like maybe Reed Duke would if he got to know you and have a conversation, do something. But like, what's the odd Reed Duke's ever going to even find you? You know, especially if you're not doing something about it. So um, that was just a conversation I had with someone. I think it was really helpful and it was really good to sort of get to talk about that thing that we kind of allude to a lot of magic. I think a lot of people know, but maybe we just don't talk about it enough. It's something that uh, is sort of just not mentioned. So I think this is really important. I know that I struggled with this multiple times in the past, um, and honestly, like. Uh, imposter syndrome is really hard especially in magic i think a lot of people feel it um and i had a really good conversation with former coach john stern um it was after he had quit magic we were just hanging out like we were talking about tv shows and movies we were just hanging out during the pandemic after he had left the show and um he he really put things in perspective for me of like you don't know other people's situations. You don't know other people's goals. You don't know anything when that would matter when it comes to this type of stuff. What you do know 
is your own situation, what is reasonable for your own goals, and what is reasonable for your own success. And um, this came up because he, I'll, I'll be a little transparent, he, he said, I think you're better than X platinum, former platinum pro Spencer. And I was like, that's crazy. Let's look at the results. We looked at the results and it turns out I actually had better results at Grand Prix and Pro Tours by percentage than that Platinum Pro. And I was like, oh, maybe perception of what other people think doesn't matter. And maybe your own perception might not even matter because what actually matters is those things we highlighted earlier, right? Your own your your own goals, your own limitations, and just, I don't know, being honest with yourself. I think it's a really good one, Mason. Yeah, I mean, you know, if this is something you want to hear more about, we really do talk about, uh, you know, a lot of this topic, I feel like, in the episode we did on, uh, on Mental Game just a couple weeks ago. Um, but I definitely think that if you're trying to, if you're putting yourself in a position to derive a majority of your um satisfaction and gratification from magic extrinsically from other sources you're never going to be as happy as if you decide to do it intrinsically if you do it because you want to do it and because you're trying to prove something to yourself and you know even if you decided something you want to do but you don't want to do that bad for yourself it's something you want to do that bad to prove someone else and like stick to someone else at the end of it the only value you're guaranteed to be left with is going to be your intrinsic value. And odds are, like, and I've been in these positions, you're not really even going to care at the point where it comes to fruition, you put in all this effort that you, like, stuck it to that guy or, you know, did this thing to, like, prove everyone wrong when it doesn't It doesn't always come back that way or even when it does, it doesn't feel as good as you think it will. So, you know, I think it's really, really important to remember um, you know, when you have things to prove, you really want to make sure it's something you want to prove to yourself. I'll go next. Uh, I, so this week, I this week was really hard for me, like on a personal level. I had a sick kid. I we me and my son both got the flu, and so the <clears throat> excuse me, the level of like gaming that I would typically do, and like the different the different things available to me was a little rough. Also, uh. Was doing coverage this weekend, got sick, couldn't even finish coverage this weekend. So it was it was uh it was like a rough week for magic. But but uh I tried to really make the most of it and also make the most of like my time laying in bed sick and like stuff like that. And um I, I'm gonna kinda piggyback onto a couple things. Uh I had uh one of my very best friends, former co-host of the show, guest of the show, Quinn Pierce, um, he had like nine top eights or something for RCQs this this season and didn't convert. And like, uh, you know, I, I gave him a call on the drive home. I was like, hey, man, I just want you to know, like, I really appreciate your consistency. I really, you know, I, I think that you did great. I'm really sorry that it didn't happen for you. Um, But one of the things that come up in that conversation was just kind of this this thought to me of understanding both what your own goals are and and how what you can do applies to those so Quinn is the type of person to 
really just take like a challenge winning deck list or a you know an, a, a pro tour deck list and just jam it and then like change one or two cards and that that does not work in a lot of local metals in my opinion and one of the things that i've been doing this week is looking at our rcq winning deck lists are you know like what is happening in my local meta and understanding what i need to worry about um because i my goal over the next few months is going to be qualifying for another rc like my goal is to qualify for every rc that i can right now in magic and I'm doing a lot of things. I'm like figuring out the local formats. I'm looking at RC results from things like Canada and like where are people going to grab deck lists from, right? So like Pioneer, for example, Canada had the three of the last four or two of the last four uh, RCs. And how are people going to do Pioneer if Pioneer is my next RCQ? Um, once again, though, like what are the RC, the recent RCQ results if the format is close to that like what did the metagame look like what are people doing who are the who are the players that i know of that are going to be at the next rcq and really getting back to like in my opinion like basic metagaming as far as like a local level because this is something that i used to do a lot like understanding what to expect understanding sequencing of different formats and then preparing for the right formats at the right times uh, so that's kind of been my always bring this week is like really diving into stuff that I don't think that I normally would just for the podcast. That's awesome. Yeah. The uh, figuring out of like what's going on and like smaller metagames as well as larger metagames is one of the more interesting uh, things I think in Magic. And it's really cool to kind of see how it changes week to week and also just the perceptions other have yeah i mean i i definitely do this a lot in my local women and we talked about this uh it was more than a handful of months ago now um and like why i was sticking to hammer even during the four color format was like well i know that locally no one's playing money pile rest in peace sorry mason um sorry my bank but i know people play a ton of murktide and i feel favored that and so if I know I'm going to play against Murktide a lot in my in my elimination rounds or in my, my late Swiss rounds, I'm well positioned for that. And even small things like that where you know that the good players in your area gravitate towards a, a certain type of deck, being a little bit more prepared for it, even in just how you're spending your time to understand a matchup or, you know, having that 15 sideboard card kind of lean in a little bit or that last last choice in your main deck lean in a little bit can be can be really valuable. And if you're not doing that, you are giving up that edge, especially yeah. if you're just... I'll, I'll give the thing off, off moto. I'll give some insight here. I, if you're a patron, you might have seen that. I don't actually know if my most recent list is updated, but like I've been playing a lot of Gruel vehicles uh, the last 24 hours, and I have obstinate bailout on my sideboard. The one of the reasons for that is mono red is really prevalent in Pioneer in my local metagame, as is uh, sack decks. Like, and what do people do on turn two on sack decks? Uh, they they play Croxa, and Man, is that a thing that beats Croxa? Um, in fact, it, it even happened today. I actually played against Mono Red and Croxa today with this deck. Um, things that I expect in my local metagame in Pioneer, and it, it worked out both times. Like, I had the option of Bailoff, uh, discarded it before I untapped on turn two. I had one land in play and an option of Bailoff in play. It was 
it was yeah mason shaking his head for the listeners like it was disgusting rest in peace <laughs> or you wind up in someone else's photo screenshot yeah. <laughs> honestly Honestly. Uh, if you want to support the show directly, head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg. It is one of the best ways to support the show. Um, and it, it helps it helps a ton. Uh, we got a lot of supporters leading up to our last open. We'll, we'll, we'll announce the dates for the next open really soon. Um, it, means, it means a lot to us. Every time we get that notification, it's like, I don't know, it, it almost feels like we did something right, like we helped the person. So head on over to patreon.com slash ccmtg. If you are looking for cards, though, and you're in the U.S., head on over to King Gridley Ice. Uh, it, the link is in the show notes uh, for our affiliate link. But you can also just use the code ccmtg10 for 10% off your first order. And honestly, like, uh, there was not a person that didn't that got store credit from our event for our what well, it was almost a 1k that was like uh they didn't have what i needed like everybody got what they needed they're an amazing store to like get your cards um you know mason has threatened to buy salt lake out of cards multiple times he has to go to so many stores including uh including game red uh finally last update i, I think i think we mentioned this last week but we have a swag store now for ccmtg um, if you want a t-shirt, you want a water bottle, you want a desk mat, you want life pad, what, you know, head on over to the swag store. Uh, this is another way to support the show where you, you know, you, maybe you don't want to do a reoccurring thing, but you just like want to support the show with like a t-shirt or, you know, your, however you want to do it. Uh, it's a great way to do that. Uh, the, just go to constructorism.com, hit the swag button and there will be a link right there. It's also in the show notes. So let's. Let's get to the main topic, though. Things you can pre-plan. Uh, Mason, if people are watching live, then they know that uh, we discussed this before the show, that this is this has been a long time coming, man. Yeah, I think this idea, the genesis of it was we were talking on the podcast, and I think you were a pitched a mulligan or whatnot, uh, like of a hand or something like that, and I was like, well, did they have Loris or Yorion? And, like, the description, you know, just, like, did they show us anything? And then we got into this whole conversation about, like, pre-planning stuff and even, like, pre-game, like, the actual game starting. There's so much you can do. Uh, and that sort of, you know, spiraled from just, like, as simple as, like, oh, my opponent has maybe Yorion. So, like, in Pioneer, I know it's one of the maybe the more grindy decks versus, like, oh, it's Giganta. Maybe it's one of these decks. So, the, oh, there's no companion, maybe something like that. To a lot bigger, more relevant things across larger formats and just sort of, you know, timelessly. I, I don't think companions probably going to be a timeless part of magic, but you know, these things. Are yeah. I mean, eventually it'll be banned, right? Like eventually it'll be gone. That's, you know what? You should be on Twitter today. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> right, you talk about Andy's tweet. Cause the, uh, anyway, tomorrow well, uh, article, wait, that's a Patreon post show. All right. All right. Uh, no, I, I, I think that, like, one of the reasons that the show changed is, like, this was brought up because of, like, the Lyris format. And then now it's like, okay, well, Lyris is gone. But it, is it is it not multi-format that you can gain information early or even before before a game starts? Um, or, yeah, I think, I think that's that's the premise here. 
Let, let's talk about things before the event. Uh, because there was, I, I've been listening to a lot of First Strike lately, guys. You know, friends of the show, Andy and uh, Derek. They're a big, they're big proponents of like really hammering home, uh, similar to me, like matchups and like what is truth in Pioneer. And I'm kind of curious what you guys think of like, is matchup knowledge something that before the event you are 100% accountable for? Like this is just something before an event you get to know. Like what is this matchup about? Yeah. Yeah. You go ahead. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to it's hard to say that you're prepared for an event if when you sit down and play a, a match of magic against one of the you know top like in a deck like in a form like Pioneer, maybe like five ten decks and modern five ten decks, and you feel like you don't know what your plan is supposed to be, that is a huge signal to me that you did not come prepared for that event. You could know you could have it written on your sideboard guide. You could have, you know, you'd be like, oh, I'm just playing green. I know that I'm going to, you know, just play some Llanowar Elves and play some Tarns and, and nick those, and that's going to be my thing. But if you don't have an idea of what's going on with your opponent in the game and what they're trying to accomplish, then you've really failed yourself in terms of things you could have planned for in the tournament. Because those are going to just build an information base for you to make good decisions in game and you know really be thinking about the whole picture uh when you're playing and i think that if you don't do that um you know across the board you're you're really not taking the most advantage of the opportunity you have mason i i actually think you you with with uh rest in peace you are on myself with murktide and abe with with hammer well, shown the the ability to do this, right? Like, where it, all of us have been able to beat bad matchups, and even say like, "Here's our bad matchups. Here's our plan for those bad matchups." What what is what goes into that though? Like, how does somebody come to those kind of conclusions before an event starts? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with this too. You know, if king a bad matchup stopping you from winning the tournament, you're gonna have a bad magic career. You gotta be able to beat bad matchups to win a magic tournament. If you don't, congratulations on getting very lucky. Uh, but regardless, it comes on down to format knowledge, you know, and to have this sort of matchup knowledge, a little bit of that is, you know, kind of doing the research, looking at the decks. But really, when you get to boil it down further, instead of format knowledge, I mean, like, okay, what's going on with the format? What are these decks doing? What are the kind of the pillars of the format? What are the key cards? What are the key interaction points? Like, what's the removal that's dominating the format? What am I allowed to do because of this removal? You know, does the format have sideboard options available to me? And all of that's very different and changes up format to format and allows, excuse me, allows for different types of decks uh, to be playable and strong and allow you to sort of know what you need to do in each matchup. Because let's say, you know, you're playing against some sort of Urza Saga, Urza Saga affinity deck. Well, if that's the case, they might have certain things that are different from deck to deck, but you know the general idea of what they're doing, and you can apply that format knowledge to that individual matchup and have a good range of things that you know. And you also have a good idea of what their most powerful things can be. Typically, the most powerful thing is the thing that is done uh, in the most stock versions of deck. So really, you just have to worry about the more fringe stuff. And if you have the most powerful things down, you should be fine. I actually think that what you just said is really key. You talked about stock versions. And I think that, like, 
The next point is around deck lists. And like whether it's your own deck list or actually just like what a deck list could reasonably look like in a lot of cases, that is something you can know before an event starts. Like I, I I'll I'll go to like Jerry Key. Like if there's a person that I know of that just literally goes and looks at too many deck lists, to be honest, like, uh, no, not really. Like, you do you, Jerry. But uh, this this guy looks at, like, 300 deck lists a week, it feels like. Like, he's actually just looking at every deck list available. And that is something that is possible, right? Like, you, you can, in fact, know what the top performing decks in each format look like, Abe. Yeah, and beyond even just knowing, like, what they look like, you can kind of get a sense for, like, what they could look like, right? There's a lot of times where there's variations in the way people build things. There are times where, um, I remember a really, really impactful moment of this for me was, a, it was during the Bant Company format of Standard, where uh, there were, like, certain people who built their mana base in, like, in one of the, I think it was in like the the green black decks. So some way they built the mana base, or some way that they uh, sideboarded in the mirror matches that would tell you a lot about what their sideboard looked like or what their main deck like flex choices looked like if they were copying someone's deck list because there was kind of like two or three camps going on. And so obviously arriving at that much knowledge is a lot of pre preparation. You have to be like, oh, you played a fortified village, that means your deck has two Dromoka's command. Like that's a lot to really really take in and that's that's pretty advanced but knowing that you know sometimes you're uh you're again from an older standpoint but sometimes your martyr vehicles opponent is just going to board in fumigate because some of the decks do that or some of your uh you know for pioneer some of your rakdos opponents will board in um sky sovereign because that's a card that well, can we go can we go back to the fumigate really quick though because like how your opponent plays could dictate if you've looked at 20 deck lists, right? How they play could be like, okay, they either boarded in Fumigate, they had it in their sideboard, they didn't. Like, or their hand just doesn't line up that way, but like, you get that information. That it, like, knowing that piece of information is what we're talking about. Where that Fumigate it, out of Mardu means X or Y according to how they're playing. Yeah, yeah, it opens up the things that you can be thinking about in the game to know about those things you've thought about before the game, and especially when it comes to people's deck lists and the thing you're, things you're playing around, or you know, like what is their what is their mid range haymaker going to be, you know, in in some standard formats, or you know, are they playing Shouldreds or Wandering Minds or whatever in standard Grixis right now? What is what is the way they're building the deck or could be building the deck, and what does that say about the rest of their deck? It can be something you can really really learn by. I I actually think Mason that you're your five color deck was really good at this specific thing at understanding what the top decks would look like and then adjusting your packages to attack that. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think that was a big part of the four color control deck. And I think it's like a really big part of Murktide sideboards now. But if, if you were going to play four color before, and honestly, even more so now that your deck is weaker, uh, you have to sort of, understand what other people are bringing to the table otherwise you can't have the right cards because it's a lot of it is lining up the cards well against their cards and kind of macro game planning 
that's what they're trying just to make sure that you're having good trades and you're available that you have the right tools available to solve the problems at hand and if you're not changing your tools there isn't a one-size-fit-all situation you know you're gonna need a different type of wrench for different size screws and same thing's true here uh you you mentioned something really interesting where you you had packages in your main deck you also mentioned Merktide, right, Laura? It's sideboard and how it sideboards is actually the key there. Um, how how do you guys think, and I'll, I'll go to you first, Dave. How do you think that, like, things before an event is what we're covering here, how do sideboard plans come into play here? Where, right, how much of that ownership is on yourself? How much is it on format knowledge? What about format knowledge, matchup knowledge, deck list? But, like, at some point you have to put pen to paper people ask us for cyber grades all the time but at the end of the day if you don't understand why you're doing it does it what's going on yeah i think um i think when it comes to comes to pre-planning one of the things that most people and honestly the thing that i have thought about the most when i've thought about you know things you can pre-plan the most obvious one to most people is like, oh, I can bring a sideboard guide to the tournament. I can know how it is I'm going to sideboard and all the matches I'm going to play against. That way I don't have to think about it in the game. But beyond that, when it comes to building those sideboard plans, that is something you're actively pre-planning. And the more, the more that those other points we've already touched on get into that process for you, the better that that plan when it comes to sideboarding is going to be. And the more that you think through not only your own sideboard plan, but other deck sideboard plans against your deck, you know, you take the time to plan out, um, you know, what the game is going to look like or what the cards that are going to matter are going to be. That's going to help you make better decisions for when you show up to the tournament, better decisions for when you're playing the games. Like if you know that, um, you know, this happened for a while with Magus of the Moon versus Blood Moon on, on Magic Online when Viseju was first printed. People immediately identified a lot of really, really savvy Magic Online players decided, you know what? People are going to have a lot of Viseju's and getting a lot of basic forest in the decks to play Viseju. And that's going to be how they're going to answer Blood Moon. So if I need a Blood Moon people, I actually want Magus of the Moon because they're not going to have a lot of Lightning Bolts or Unholy Heats in those decks I'm trying to Blood Moon. And so I need to shut off their best interaction for this Blood Moon and instead have Magus. Or, as time went on, people started to realize that, you know, against four color, I don't even want to Blood Moon. Because I've played the matches, I've seen the matches play out, where this card looks like it might be good, but they can just play in a way that makes those cards completely invalid and I'm wasting my time. So knowing things like that can happen, knowing the decks where Blood Moon might even be a possibility, and then being able to say, hey, I know that a lot of Merkai decks have Blood Moon, I know they might bring it against me, let me fetch this basic land. Those are things that you could have absolutely pre-planned and known yeah. going into the start of that game because you knew the deck coming in and you knew what your opponent was playing coming in and what was going to happen that you just already know to do that and plan around doing that with the way you're sequencing your mana or keeping hands only at fetch lands. Things like that can really um, can really come forth from that. Yeah, and to hop on to kind of what Abe sort of mentioned there, but to really, I think, hammer it home, I think so often... In content, you will find people talking about cyborg plans, and they talk about what well, Abe just eventually mentioned there. But also, there's a lot of content out there for every deck, and you can spend time, like Abe mentioned, like oh, they're gonna have a bunch of Asajus, I should play Magus instead of Blood Moon. 
even if you don't make those huge changes, just know what they're trying to do. You know, if there's like a free guide out there where you can watch someone stream or just like, you know, try and get a condensed version of it or just ask a question to someone. If you know, like, oh, maybe not every hammer player is doing this, but some hammer players, you know, do this sort of thing. You can get a much better idea of how they're planning. And that should update your plan. You know, you don't want to just be like, well, I know Blood Moon's really good, so I'm going to, you know, play my Blood Moon into them, even though they probably have a bunch of cyborg cards for it. If that's the case, maybe you don't want to jam Blood Moon on turn three when it's kind of exposed, you know? Maybe you want to do something different. And that sort of thing, I think, is super important to this and doesn't get talked about enough. So I'm glad that Abe kind of hit on it there. I want to kind of actually add to that. Um, I'm going to back up to do it too, where Abe, you also mentioned like, uh, kind of this nebulous part before the tournament, like before you write down that guide, and uh, or or before you even ask for the guide. And for me, like a lot of the times when I'm practicing, like my sideboard is nebulous. Like I'm like changing sideboard cards, main deck cards, a bunch, it, whether it's on the ladder or whether it's between leagues, and just trying to figure out like, okay, what is this matchup about, right? And then you know adjusting my sideboard accordingly and then maybe before a big event this this happened a lot like when gps were a thing and it, it happens for me now like before i sit down for maybe uh an rcq and i think it'll happen before this rc but like what what do i think these matchups are about and do i have the appropriate sideboard plans accordingly and that's how I build your your own cyborg guide. That's how I build my cyborg guides. And we have a whole episode on this, I think, with the three of us on how to build your own cyborg guide. I highly recommend that. But the 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 cyborg plan thing, it's a plan. It's not like a it's not a rock hard thing. It's the it is understanding. It, it goes back to the things we talked about earlier, right? It's matchup knowledge. What is this matchup about? And do I have a cyborg plan that fits that? Um, I the, the last one for things before the event, I think um, I'm going to shout out a really old podcast. It's called The A-Team. Like KYT, Scotty Mack, Jay Boosh, uh, Jonathan Medina. They did this thing where they every week would, would play a game called Sneak Keeper Ditch. One of them would take a standard deck draw an opening hand and ask Sneep, which is snap keep keep, which is like, yeah, I would keep this or ditch. Like I'm going to mulligan this. And I used to do this on the way to every single PTQ for like an hour of the like six hour drive. Like we would just talk about an in a, not inappropriate. Actually, maybe it was the appropriate number of hands. Where, where the time I got to the event, I knew exactly what the hands were that were appropriate in the format after a lengthy discussion with all five of us in a compact car talking about it. Um, I think I think this is something that you should know before your big event. But Mason, I want to pitch it to you. Like, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I think it's, a <coughs> sorry. Yeah, I think it's important to know, uh, the range of keepable hands, especially like in game ones where you kind of need to know what your deck is trying to do 
and what you are allowed to keep. So I think like a really good example of this is sort of Hammer in current modern, where kind of in the dark, apropos of nothing, uh, I will try and keep hands that always have at least a hammer or an equipper, and I won't keep hands that don't have that that are seven cards, especially with the London Mulligan. And if I have a seven-card hand, it has to have a really good reason as to mulligan it. So an example might be like, I don't know, if I had, you know, a couple lands, Springleaf Drum, Esper Sentinel, like, that's not really capable. But if I had, like, three lands, four Esper Sentinels, that might be something that's like, okay, this is worth keeping about. This is sort of weird. Um, and it would take something like that for me to sort of want to mulligan. And even then, I'm not even really torn my plan. If my opponent you know, has a lot of creatures, this could be invalidated. And so I, I try to know what my deck is trying to do in game one and then sort of tie into sideboard plans and postboard. It's really important to sort of know what am I trying to do in the games postboard and kind of tying into plan and format knowledge and matchup knowledge. And can my hand facilitate that? Um, we've talked about in the past how a lot of games are won and lost in the mulligan um, and how that's such an important step of the game and the range of people's hands and knowing what you're trying to do, I think, matters here uh, a lot as well. Yeah, I, I think that especially when it comes to this range of keepable hands, like that's something that you can absolutely have an idea of before the event, because that's something that, like you said, Spencer, you don't actually have to play any games to really determine for yourself. I remember there was a regionals where I was playing Tron because I had like finals all week or like projects due all week in college. And I was like, I'm going to play a deck where the only thing I have to do is really think about my mulligans, and it's pretty well positioned, and hopefully I'll do fine. Dude, that was... In open... I gotta, I gotta call this out. I actually had this exact same thing when I came back to Modern, and I played a, I played a Modern Challenge, cashed the Modern Challenge, with this exact same thought process on Tron. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I got top 16 in an open doing this, and I, uh, I cashed the regionals doing this, where I was just like, yep, I just this is the only thing I have time to pre-plan for, and because of the nature of Tron, that was good enough. Um, you know, not to not to keep on talking about Hammer so much. Now that Mason is also a Hammer guy, but um, you know, it's good to set rules for yourself about for some decks of you know what are the hands you can keep, especially a deck that's kind of like a combo deck um, in Hammer, but especially in matchups, knowing like you know if you're playing blue-white control and you're playing against a Ren and Six deck, and you're on the play, and you keep a hand that can't answer a turn two Ren and Six, that's probably a mistake, right? And if I ask you, hey, what happens when you're looking at this hand if your opponent plays Ren and Six on turn two, a card that you know because they're playing against blue-white control, they're going to want to develop on turn two because it's such a powerful card advantage engine. You're like, well, I guess I just lose to that. Well, maybe you should have considered the fact that that's likely to happen in making your plan for the kinds of hands you're looking for are. And that's that's really something you can think about on a conceptual level, using that format knowledge, using the matchup knowledge to your advantage in the same way that, you know, whenever I sit down and play against Murktide, which happens a lot in, um, in it happened a lot to me this RCQ season, playing in the top eight, knowing my opponent was on Murktide, you know, knowing that I'm on the draw and looking at my hand and saying, does this have the important cards? Does this have the Urza Saga, the Esper Sentinel I'm looking for? You know, if I'm playing against matchup, does this, is my plan of, Stoneforge for Calder Complete, going to be strong enough here. Thinking those things all the way through and knowing that even before you shuffle up and draw your hand in a match is such a big difference maker um, and is something you can absolutely kind of figure out for yourself and set rules for yourself with 
um, that, that will lead to you avoiding those spots of, yeah, the hand was really close and I think I made the wrong decision because you'll have already thought about making the right decision. Yeah, I, I think I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that was really popular early on in our Discord, and maybe I'll make a whole channel for this, was this was a question, right? Like people were questioning their their keeps and like, I'll, I'll make a whole channel for this in the Patreon Discord, but I, I think this is really, really important. I think it is the easiest way to gain percentage points. What about during the event? Um, we have we have a couple points during the event. I mean, like, well, what do you mean? This is this is pre-planning, but you can actually pre-plan during the event too. Uh, there are things that you can do that you are still pre-planning before your match. And the first one we want to talk about is a yucky subject that I talked about uh, recently that has actually helped me a ton and has helped some of my teammates a ton, and that's scouting. Um, I have a Discord with a couple of local players where every RCQ, our team knows every decklist and every opponent before we sit down. After round one, I know every single person's deck list. I'm able to see my opponent. I am able to then say, okay, they're on this deck, and I can mulligan accordingly. I know it's yucky. I know people don't like it. But I, it's it's a thing that happens. Uh, Abe, I'm going to pitch it to you because, like, I do it. So I'm not going to pretend like yeah, I don't. And, and I actually, I think I mentioned this on the show maybe two or three months ago. But I was at an RCQ. And someone who I'm not going to name um, because I don't really want to name them for it. But someone was there and they had just gone around after finishing their match and written down the deck list of every player that they could recognize, whose name they could get in a notebook. And then, like, right before playing my went in for top eight, came up to me and was like, oh, hey, your opponent's on this, by the way, and showed me it. And I was like, you know, especially, you know, when it comes to RCQs, if I've decided that my goal is to win and this is available to me, then, like, am I... Am I really doing everything I can if I'm not trying to know um, and trying to use the information available to me? And if you're someone who doesn't decide this is for you, it is something that's kind of a bit uh, a bit of a gray area of, of tournament ethics. That ha- There's a lot of discussion that happens about it on Twitter a lot, especially at higher level events. But if you, if you I... know that you can know what you're playing against, it is something available to you. Can, to can I talk about this for a second? I have friends who will come to events not even to play just because they're close and want to come hang out who will do this for us, and it has been really helpful. Yeah. Um, I As as uh, a player that is prominent in their local community, everyone knows what I'm playing after round one. Like, everyone. Like, it is talked about in the tournament room what Spencer is playing. It, it happens. I've, I've heard people come up to me, hey, why did you pick that? Like, the people that were on the opposite side of the room, like, people just talk about what I'm playing. So I don't, I want to be clear that I don't feel bad. Like if you're all going to tell everybody what I'm playing, I don't feel bad saying like, okay, well, I'm going to know what everybody in the room is playing then. 
I know I I get that it's great, but like I just want to be clear that I don't think it's that great when like everyone gets. I think Mason's probably out of the same belt. Like everyone knows what Mason's playing after round one. Well, yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts. First, I don't think it's ethically great. I think we're actually doing a disservice to the listeners by painting it as such i don't think it's gray you think it's black and white like it's fine it's fine okay good i'm i'm in agreement with mason i'm glad we got there well that's why i think like and don't don't cut it for it's worth that's why i think no i think it's fine painting it that way because we're like or if you're listening to this podcast you at least value something what we're saying we're giving it for the first time you got this far and maybe you bounce off it here maybe you don't but like it's whatever. Personally, I don't scout. I like if I get up, I'll walk around the room and like look at what people are playing and like playing with people. But I don't like try to like write it down or do anything like that. I just sort of know and then via playing the tournament, I'll kind of figure it out. But like at you know big events where people come up to me like before the tournament even started and they're like, so like what made you pick camera this week? Or right. You know? And like my, that stuff's out and it's like at bigger events and. I remember something that uh, Harlan Fear mentioned where he's just like, yeah, all my opponents know what I'm playing. It just doesn't matter, you know? He was like, number two, I think. I think he lost playing for player of the year to Zan Sayed that year, where both players in the SCG circuit, all their deck lists are out on Twitter all the time. Those things weren't paywalled. It was the cyborg guys that were, excuse me, those cyborg guys that were paywalled. And clearly you could succeed when that's the, like, even with that information out there. And my information's out there too, and that's sort of the same guide that I go when it comes to monetization of Magic, where it's like, my deck list is free, the cyborg guide and sort of the thoughts and everything else, that's what's paywalled. And so anyone, and I, they're happy to follow me, and you know they can spend me five bucks and I'll tell them exactly what I'm playing, including it, the cyborg. It, I just don't care. It's the same thing, right? Like You can look at my exact deck list. If you're a patron of CCMTG, I probably posted my deck list in our Discord before an event. The, the, thing, the, thing, that, like, the thing that happens here is like, we talked about mulligan decisions like a minute ago, right? And if you get to mulligan against me, I I, I want the same opportunity. Uh, and I, I don't think that that's scummy of me. Yeah, I, I don't think it's scummy. I also just, it is what it is. We're, we're, playing an open deckless tournament has just reinforced that right. players are really bad with using the information that they have. And, and, when I, and when I get to play open deckless versus people, unless my opponent's really good, it often feels way easier and it validates to me the people that are like, wow, open deck list, like the rich get richer. And it's like, it's true, but it's also learnable. So like, No, it, it's, it's totally true. I think open deck list is like the, the next talking point, right? Like during the event, if you have an open deck list, we talked about cyborg plans. We talked about deck lists. We talked about range of capable hands. We talked about format knowledge, matchup knowledge, like all of that comes into play with open deck lists. Yeah. I mean, as someone, I played, uh, the fir- I played the the RC. I was gonna say the first, but I guess it's the only one we've had. Uh, so I, I played the RC and it was open deck list. Uh, I guess what was that like a month ago now, month and a half. And uh, every single round, I read all my opponent's cards in their deck and their sideboard. Um, and the reason I read, uh, sorry, at, before game one, because if you didn't play the RC, you would hand the deck list and you would have like two minutes to look at it. Um, and then hand it back, and then you can look at it again during sideboarding. Um, and I would read their whole main deck and look. I read every card. And make sure I knew what all the cards were, which was typically very easy. I'd look for anything that's weird. And then the sideboards, even before game one started, I looked at their sideboard to get a feel for how they thought of the matchup. If they have a bunch of cyborg cards 
for the matchup they might not feel very confident about and think it's a weaker point and there might be something I can exploit that maybe I didn't catch up in the first game. So I would check the sideboard for that and go back over. And it was very helpful multiple times. Like, you know, it's very easy to like start reading the red black list and it's like your eyes glaze over and you miss that it's three graveyard trespassers instead of four. And there's like a main deck go blank, which is like, actually I think it was two and one go blank and then like one evoke despair for the person had. And it's like, that's big information for me to know. And it means that things like putting a Arclight Phoenix in the graveyard is maybe less of a threat, uh, less of a problem in the early turn because they're going to have to spend a turn go blanking to punish it and not developing and punishing. And like that changed the way I play. So, Well, I, I think this is, uh, I actually got a message about like online tournaments and how the SEG was like really fueling that for a little bit. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I talked about is like, I think that people really hated online deck lists to the point where people are a little afraid to go to melee to like run their events. Uh, but I, I actually, it's great. Like, I think that it really rewards what you just talked about, right? Uh, you, you talked about like almost level two of this Mason where level one is what my like mulligan decisions level two is like, okay, how are they going to play the matchup according to how their deck looks? But I think that there's another level beyond that in like, okay, how are they going to play the matchup after game one? Like, how, how are they going to do this now? And I, I, I think that open deck list is, in my opinion, like the future of magic. I actually think it's better. Um, there are things that it hurts. It is spike here. And I'm, I'm a spike. Uh, there are things that it hurts, but I'm a brewer too, right? Like, you know, I, it, I've qualified for the pro tour with like a literal deck list that no human would ever play again. But I still think that there's a level of, it is okay. If you know that I'm doing something nonsensical, if you can't combat my nonsense. And I also think that like, that matchup knowledge, format knowledge. I mean, we open deck lists. We talked about deck lists earlier. Like, what is a reasonable deck list? Well, what if what if it's not reasonable? Like, what if what if this is actually nonsensical? Um, I I think I think that open deck lists during the event lets you do the things that you pre planned for your, before the event started. Abe? Yeah, I I had a lot of success during um, the. With the Lotus Box series uh, a couple years ago, where that was the first time I'd ever really played open deck list tournaments. And uh, Mason was one of my victims along the way. But I won quite a few of my matches just by looking at how my opponent built their deck, looking at all the cards in it, knowing what to play around at all times, knowing how they were going to sideboard and sideboarding ac- accordingly. And, you know, just being able to do things like that in open deck lists is. In that sense, it's not even like pre-planning because they're giving you the information there. But those same skills that you use in pre-planning, that is um, that is the the whole thing, right? When you have access to the deck list, which is really what, maybe not in the exact sense of you know every card, but when you come in knowing all the things you could know about uh, about what you're going to be looking at, come time to sit down for the match, that is. Uh, that is about as valuable as it gets. And really, when you uh, pre-plan effectively and you're doing all of these things outside of when you've sat down and shuffled up to be as prepared as you can be for the matches you're playing, it really does show through in the fact that, like, 
you know, sure, you don't have to scout someone or scout everyone to know, like, yeah, that ringer in your area who always plays Murktide, they're always playing Murktide. Therefore, you need to know your Murktide matchup. And you know that this week they were talking about bringing in Blood Moons, or they have the Blood Moons main deck instead of the Archmage's Charms. And for those reasons, you're going to play accordingly. The fact that you took in that information before you sat down to play your match, that is going to matter. And that, like, really is the whole point of it, right? That is that is the whole principle. All right. Our last point is discussing how you play versus the deck that you see. I am going to be honest. I have literally uh, had, a, like, known who my top eight opponent was at an RCQ or, or a, P, a PPTQ or a... a uh, I don't know, whatever the the, the, the the alphabet is, where somebody else had a similar deck sleeved up, and we just actually played games, talked about games and sideboarding before top eight. Like, that's just happened for me. And this is that thing, like, we're talking about things during the event. That is the thing you can do. Like, you get to look at the CD, like, especially if you're undefeated, you have a pretty good idea of, like, the range of three decks that you're going to play against in the top eight. Um, I've done this a lot. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I added this point to the show, and what Spencer's saying is true, but also, when thinking about it, uh, it's something to think about, like, maybe if you're playing against, like, someone like, who is Spencer, like a brewer, and is playing, like, a weirder, we're more off-the-wall build of a deck, or presented some sort of new deck to the format, and it's brought, you know, some standard deck or whatever, and you just have time or before... It's funny, in the things before the event that you can play, and Spencer led the question at the very beginning of this show with, uh, is it on you to do these things? And the answer to all of those, if you didn't figure out, was yes, it's on you, and you should do all these before the event things. But sometimes you can do all that stuff, and then a guy brings Naya Werewolves to your standard RCQ, and you need to figure out, what do Naya Werewolves do? How do I fight these? You know, And like watching their deck, talking to your friends, trying to discuss it, is a thing to do, even if, like, regardless of how good you deck, think the deck is, it's something there, and it's a way to, like, effectively use your time, and, like, you realistically could get paired with this person, so this is really what I was sort of thinking about, was, like, when you see something weirder, and sometimes you'll see this happen at events where, like, ah, oh, Lotus Box all brought Prison Tron, you know, like, what's what's that, like, and, you know, and, like, a lot of people be like, oh, whatever, but, like, discussing, like, oh, how would I fight, we're thinking about how would I play against Prison Tron, is important, you know, you get paired against someone in Lotus Box and they're playing it, you have a little bit of pre-knowledge, uh, even if it's maybe not as much as you would have liked. First of all, I love the uh, shout-out to the Nia Werewolves uh, almost finish. Uh, but, like, legitimately, um, if you want to beat that, just play Grixis, by the way. It's actually a terrible matchup. Uh, I, I think that something that's really hard for people to understand is, like, we, I think we've brought it up multiple times without actually calling it out. This way networking is important. Like, if you're going to play against Amulet Titan, and you know a person that plays Amulet Titan, just go ask them. Especially if they're not your opponent. Like, just go walk up to them and say, what is this matchup about and how am I supposed to do it? I, I, think, it's, I think it's easy. I think that uh, that one, they'll they'll appreciate it. One of the things I've learned about magic players is like if you respect somebody enough to like ask them their opinion on a matchup, 
especially if you're about to play it, you're about to make a friend for life. Like you're you're legit about to be like, hey, I don't know what this is about. Can you help me? This person will not only do that, but they'll be like, oh, this person respect me. I can come to them for the same type of question. I, I think that's really important. Abe? Yeah, I mean, I think that just overall, um, you know, offloading the things that you have to think about for the first time and that you don't have the time to think about when you're sitting down and playing the match, that's really the whole point of this episode, is really thinking about all the things that you could know and that you that matter to your success that you can spend your time and energy thinking about before the tournament. And sometimes you'll show up to a tournament and, you know, everyone's playing scam. And no one in your area usually plays scam. You haven't played against scam online at all. And you need to talk to your friends about, hey, I have no idea how to board in the scam matchup. This has happened, you know, countless times and countless events. And you spend that time then and there with your friends before you have to sit down for the match and figure out on, like, you know, just you, just figuring it out, what the scam matchup is actually like. And instead, you get access to more perspectives, to the people and to the content creators and to the resources that you have outside of the match in order to help you think about that and bring that with you into the match is going to make you a better and more well-rounded magic player in that match and make better decisions in that match and that will lead to just more and more of your success down the line because really you know there's only so much magic that is really played at the table and a lot of it and what really sets the best players apart is not only their ability to play the good magic table because that's necessary but it's the ability to play the game and think about the game away from the table and take that into their matches and make the good decisions in the matches because they've offloaded, you know, so, so much of the, the intricate, hard decisions into theoretical concepts through multiple perspectives, through the expertise of their friends who play these decks or don't play the decks or have a good perspective on it. You know, finding that truth is easier to do as a group than alone. And really having access to all of the resources available to you um, when you're making those kinds of big strategic decisions that lead in your at table play is absolutely everything. If you're not taking every opportunity you have to do that to help yourself succeed, you should start doing that because you'll just start seeing more and more returns. Yep. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to both of you. I actually thought that was a, a really fun one. Uh, our Patreon question this week comes from Yeoman5. He asks, what are your pre-tournament rituals or habits? I'm going to go first. Um, I hate going to a tournament without, like, sitting down for breakfast. Uh, this is maybe something that, like, is inappropriate from, like, old-school PTQs, where we would go to breakfast, make sure we had a good breakfast before PTQs. But, like, I... I will literally, even for RCQs, like now, I have to sit down, have a good breakfast, uh, kind of relax, and it's it's a lot. And then maybe like down a Rockstar Orange. That's like my pre-tournament. Um, and then additionally, like, uh, I, I think that the one of my habits is giving uh giving everybody like a hello like making sure that the people around me know like hey like i hope we're in for a good tournament like i know that that sounds weird but i think too often people 
get inside their own heads where they think that like the tournament's about them and the truth is, is like the tournament is about the tournament and I, I i really try to like go around the room say hello to people and make sure that everybody feels welcome um and is is ready for the day what about you abe uh yeah i i'm a i'm a coffee guy i don't actually drink coffee like any other time in my daily life i like don't drink coffee at work I don't do caffeine normally, but when it comes to, to tournament days, I do like to have a good good bit of caffeine just to stay alert, keep that pep in my step. Um, breakfast is like a, a maybe. I'm a big playlist builder. I, I really, for like um, all of 2018 and 2019 on the SG Tour, I, would, I had a five-song playlist of all new songs. It was also a way to equip myself to listen to more music. But it's songs that were like fresh to me, that really like made me excited to play, that really kept me, you know, in my in my zone and in my in my flow state. And so, um, yeah, jamming out to music, palling around with, especially local RCQs, like palling around with the local community, cracking jokes, you know, writing out my deck list, making sure I picked all the cards right, and like all that is, is really my my particular ritual. It's the it's the the coffee, the maybe breakfast, the music. And then, and then the camaraderie. What are you, Mason? Um, it's changed a lot over the years, but nowadays, basically, it's just I kind of eat something. Maybe it's a banana, maybe it's a granola bar. Who knows? I just go and talk to people, and then I sit down and win some matches. That's my habits at the tournament. I don't know what y'all. Wow! Wow! Twenty-two. No, but like, like jokes aside, like I kind of just go and talk to people. I don't really do much else and then tournament starts you know that's kind of my, my whole rich phil asks uh actually there's more than just that question here great episode uh this was actually i, I just want to shout out um our guest connor last week this comes from that episode um great episode how do you guys pick events to go to i can decide what format to play um because rcqs are so many different formats i i'm going to tell you guys how i read this question I think this question is saying to prepare at local events. Like how to pick which local events because of your RCQ. And to my answer to that question is don't do that. Uh, you should just support the stores locally that you want to support and then prepare however you can for your next event. Whether that be uh, a software that cannot be named on this podcast, whether that be Moto, whether it be Arena, like my answer to this question is support your local store. Like if you want to go to a weekly event or a couple, just go to those. Like go to the ones that you want the, for the stores you want to support. Do not use local store events to prepare for your RCQs because you are not going to be at that store for your RCU except for that store's RCQ. So that is my answer. Mason? I would just go to all the ones I can. And this goes back to the thing we talked about before about like, what are your goals in magic and what are you trying to do? And the way I read this question and I'm trying to figure out like the difference here is sounds to me like maybe there's too many events going on at the same time or 
maybe you can only do one event a weekend and there's like two um and just assuming you can't do both um and with that being the case i would just play whichever one i think i have the highest win rate at i'm gonna have the highest win rate at and furthermore whichever one's the closest to me so i spend the less time driving it's not really no like that that could be the most convenient to you that could be true too like i did not think of it like they had multiple rcq options that that could be true i i had not thought of that yeah, that's also how I uh, how I read the question. But also, I know that my area is really RCQ dense. Like we have a lot of scheduling conflicts because no one will run an RCQ on Sunday except for like one store in the state of Maryland. Which I fixed that here. No sense. And I'm in Utah, so let's go. Shout out to Spencer. And, and you're killing me, because honestly, I don't understand what happened to Sunday tournaments, but we got to bring them back. Dude, People straight up, have a I, I give me the back to back week. I'm gonna be, be I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna be honest. I had to fight this. The uh, so we didn't get to do coverage this weekend because I was sick yesterday. Do you, do you know the difference between the Sunday and Saturday RCQ at Game Gridley High for 2K and players? There's zero difference. There was Maybe. actually a zero difference in players. They, it was the exact same number of players. It's like people forgot that no. the best part, the only good part of PBQ season was just firing bullets the weekend and coming Dude. home and going back to your life Dude. on Monday. Dude, what's even crazier is I live in Utah. Like, uh, So for those who know, Utah is like home to Mormons, which are n- not supposed to do things on Sunday. Like you're just supposed to go to church spend family time like and because of that like people are like oh we can't run sunday events in utah but i was like that's not true salt lake is only like 40 percent mormon you should run events on sunday turns out the magic community is less mormon than not mormon and actually sunday events have the exact same number of attendance as saturday tournaments in utah you just have to champion the ape. You got to go out to your local game store and be like, you, I do. This is literally, this is actually what I do. So for what it's worth, it is, it is actually what I do. We had three RCQs on Saturday in Tennessee. You had, you had three RCQs on the same day. That happened to me three hours. Dude. Three of them all an hour drive away. Uh, if you are listening to this podcast, listen to me right now. You need to literally walk up to your store owner and literally just explain the math to them. You could be the only one on the Sunday. Like, it's not even hard math. Yeah. Why do they do this? required judges, and the judges could only be scheduled for one event at a time. Anyway, to answer your question, Phil... I would say that it really does depend on your goals. If you have a format that you want to play and really want to master, I would say go and play the event of that format. You know, if there's a modern RCQ and, you know, I'm assuming prizes are roughly the same. If you think that you're going to have to steal on on your prize support at, like, one of these stores or whatever, or one of them is paying out in cash and the other one's paying out in packs, then, like, you want the cash more than the packs if you're winning or or if you're missing on, on the invite, then I would say to go do that. But if it's you're choosing between, like, modern and pioneer at two roughly individual stores if your goal is to just play the one format that you're really trying to master that you're invested in that your time's invested in that you want to be better at go and play that one by all means even if it'll be harder even if it'll be you know um 
you know, there's not as many slots in it. But, but if that's what you care about, that's what you should be doing. If you care about qualifying the most, then I would start to think about, you know, okay, which one of the two formats do I think I'm better at? Which one do I think will be higher attended? You know, which of these two is going to be a, a harder or softer event? Which one has more slots, therefore more opportunities, less matches I have to win to actually qualify and, um, and, and make the decision that way? But ultimately, when it comes to me and the way that I decide, uh, because I feel so comfortable in all of the RCQ formats in my area, um, I really just go down to like slots, prize support. Um, I'm, I'm really big on the sporting places that'll give out like cash or store credit because I really want to support those stores and what they're doing because they are taking a big risk on running an event that does that. Um, events with judges, you know, just pick the yeah. ones that are like really the ones you want to support and, and, and go do that. I, I think that's the same thing that I was trying to say for what it's worth. Like maybe I misread this question, but like I made a post on Facebook and Twitter about Utah uh our our sponsor right like game grid lehigh specifically ran uh the the last two weekends available for rcqs the last two days not even the last two weekends like the literal last weekend they were like we're gonna take both days and we're gonna give out uh flight and hotel to first place for both and we're gonna give out like a thousand dollars in prizes to the rest of it no matter how big it is i just i think that uh utah had six stores i think that gave out either a thousand dollars in cash or credit flight uh and hotel or um or a thousand dollars cash like you should support those stores. Like support the the things that make your community better. Um, I don't know. I, I I think that that is the answer to this question. And honestly, like, uh, what's crazy to me is that uh, I'll, I'll give you some behind the scenes. Jordan, the owner of Gingrid Lehigh, was like, "I will never run a standard event." Both of his RCs were standard. RCQs were standard. The thing I covered was standard. He was like, no, it's a standard RC. We're going to do standard. I, I just think that like supporting the local competitive scene is so important at this point in Magic's history. It is it is actually paramount. Uh, that's what you should be doing. Uh, you can check out the rest of the network. Uh, Common Knowledge is coming back. They've been missing some weeks due to personal issues. Uh Drafting Archetypes just dropped their swag store, so if you're a fan of that show, check out their swag store. Um, on, honestly, uh, Mythic Cast is coming back at the beginning of next year. Me and Michaela are going to be doing it once a month, so it'll be a monthly podcast with me and her. Um, if you love the show, like, s- subscribe, and go to, go to freaking uh, Spotify. Apparently, Spotify has reviews now, Mason. Yeah, we did this bit last week. All we right. Review. Well, I'm gonna do it again. You wanna do it with me this time? Yeah. yeah, yeah all right. Yeah, yeah. Abe, spot up. I'm gonna edit. I'm not gonna edit this out. Abe, you're you're gonna. You also get to tell me how how can we leave a review? Yeah, if you just you open it up on the app. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. If you're listening. 
you just give us a review, baby, right on the, so, right on the Star Christmas page. Actually, one of the things that I like about Spotify, uh, over I, I, uh, it's not iTunes, it's Apple Podcasts, you actually have to listen to the podcast before they'll let you leave a review. Yeah, on... so right after you're done listening yes. to this episode, right after we get yeah. to the last two minutes here while we wrap up, it's going to be like, did you like that? Was that good for you? And you're going to be like, five <laughs> Mason, stars, baby. Mason's five giving five stars. stars. Give us five stars. Let's five stars. go. All right. If people want to find you, we're going to do that. I can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothing. DMs are still open for coaching. Um, please hit me up. I would love to help you as much as I. Uh, you know, with, with anything from, from Hammer to any deck to big concepts like I was talking about in this episode and always improving. Would love to help you improve your game. Uh, just send me a DM on Twitter. Mason. You can find me each and every week over at Card Kingdom writing an article. This week we have standard stuff. So if you're interested in standard, maybe we're trying to queue via the online RCQs this weekend. Stand your chance to do that. You want to check that out. Check me out at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. You can find me for coaching by emailing me uh, masonyclark at gmail.com or reaching out to me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. I officially have the OG Twitter account back. Musk unbanned me. Uh, a little good, a little bad comes with the Wild Musk Town on Twitter. And that is going to be it. If you are interested in coaching, I am sort of locking down slots uh, for until about March. And I'm kind of locking in some people. I had kind of a lot of crazy stuff going on with life around that time. And so it's going to be hard to do it, but I'm kind of getting people the chance to get in. So if you're interested in that, reach out. We can talk about it. I have about six slots left. I, I did get some coaching after last week. So if you're looking for coaching, hit me up. Mason's busy. I don't play Hammer. Go to A for that. Um, but if, if you're looking for, like, really fundamental, like, how do I build that, uh, hit me up. Um, at Spencer13H, you can find me every other week on the Need to Nerd podcast and every month on uh, the Smash 3 podcast for Smash Bros. Ultimate. And then next year, again, on Mythicast. Thank you everybody so much for listening, and we'll see you guys all next week with another episode of Constructed Criticism.